just another minute here, guys, and we'll get started. Hey, Wendell. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for joining us here. Yeah, sorry. Were you waiting for me? Yeah, we was going to start it at uh, 9 o'clock my time, 8 o'clock your time, correct? Yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to send me uh, an invite in my uh, DMs. My bad. <laughs> That's okay. I tried to do that. And, of course, Twitter being Twitter would not allow that to happen at this time. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to get to speak to you finally. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation we're going to have here tonight. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about apologetics. But in particular, we're going to look at Daniel's story. Uh, Daniel, former atheist, now Christian. And so we're going to listen to him give us his testimony of what brought him out of atheism into Christianity and then kind of maybe field a few questions for him if you got some, and uh, maybe look a little bit at the moral argument as well, as I believe that's one of the things, Daniel, that you kind of looked at that propelled you towards Christianity, if I'm not mistaken. So with that, Absolutely. without further ado, Daniel, the floor is yours. All right. So it's an interesting thing, you know, where do I begin? But I guess where I would begin myself is with my first, experiences of or my first uh, memories of going to church um my parents were both pentecostals and i remember i used to really just severely dislike going to church my mom tells me that i got baptized when i was like seven or eight i was very young i don't remember that at all but she said i went to a summer camp and i got baptized and i was on fire for god I have no memory of that. All I remember is that they would make us go to church, and I hated it. I thought that it was boring, and people would put their hands up and make strange noises. And even when I was very young, I thought that there was just something about it that was very strange. It made me very uncomfortable, put it that way. Um, So from my earliest memories, I just really did not like church. And I kept going because I kind of had to. But um, I guess the first big thing that kind of changed was that my mom and dad got divorced because my dad was unfaithful to my mom. And she tried to save the marriage. She was prepared to move on, but he would not give up the affair. And so he and my mom got divorced. And that happened right as I was about to go into high school. And so then I was going to church just with my mom and I was getting bigger and I was still living with my mom and my brother and sister. And I guess about the time I was 14 or 15, right around there, I was bigger than my mom. And I guess the thing that I remember is that I was dreading going to church so much this one particular day that we got to church. I was sitting in the car, just dreading it. And we get to church and I get out of the car and I look at my mom and I said, I'm not going in there. I'm just going to walk home. And she couldn't stop me. 
I knew that she couldn't stop me and uh, she knew it. And so that's what I did. I just walked home. And after that, I didn't go to church anymore. She knew that she couldn't make me. And so I guess that's when I really got a lot more into skepticism and these types of things, because the more I you know, thought about Christianity, the more I thought that it didn't make sense. And maybe I'll talk about that later on. But one thing I do want to mention right now, because this is kind of a topic for tonight, is that I would ask my mom questions about Christianity growing up. And I'd say, hey, mom, I don't understand this or I don't understand that. And she would say, well, you just have to have faith. And that really bothered me because even though I wasn't very old, I realized, well, a lot of people believe a lot of things, you know. So if we're just being told to just have faith, well, how do I know that the people that believe other things are not correct? You know, Um, it just really bothered me. And I think it would have been a lot better if she had studied some apologetics and been ready to give an answer for her faith. And I know that people have jobs and people have lives, but I just want to say that if you're raising kids, it's really good if you prepare mm-hmm. them uh, for defending their faith and you give them good reasons for Christianity because they do exist. But that's kind of a uh, off topic. Did you want to say something? Uh, no, I, I was just going to say, uh, kind of follow up that point and say, I, I've heard that story so many times, uh, individuals raised in church having questions and were either told, look, you just got to believe it, or even B, uh, I've heard this quite a bit in my time talking to former Christians as well, they were told it's actually it's not a good thing to, to question God, and uh, kind of as if, if it was a negative to even come up with those kind of questions. And, and of course, you know, biblically speaking, First Peter 3.15 tells us that, you know, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And behind that term defense, of course, is the actual Greek word apologia. It's where we get the term apologetics from. And it means essentially to give a, a reasoned argument or a logical defense of the faith. But so many Christians lack that. Uh, they don't take the time to study it. And I think that that's really hurting the church in modern America today. But uh, uh, all right, Daniel, sorry to interject that point, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I I think you and I are definitely on the same page when it comes to that. And I figured um, this would be a good place to remind people, uh, especially since there will likely be Christians that listen to this, you know, just um, try to have a good reason for why you believe the things that you believe and then explain that to your children. It's important. Because I thought when my mom said, well, you just have to have faith. I'm like, well, that's not a good reason because anybody could say that. A Muslim could say that. A Hindu could say that to their kids. How am I supposed to know that Christianity is the true one? They can't all be true. But anyway, so that really bothered me. And, and when I did leave uh, Christianity or, or I stopped going to church because I don't believe I was ever saved before that, um, I just started coming up with more and more questions and I became more and more skeptical and I got more and more into the uh, skeptical slash atheist movement um, to the point where I would watch the four horsemen of atheism, which was uh, Harris, uh, Dawkins, Dennett, and um, Hitchens. Yeah. Uh, Hitchens was my favorite. 
and I would watch them and I thought that they were all great except Daniel Dennett. I thought he was kind of lame, but, um, I really liked Christopher Hitchens. I thought he was uh, a wonderful debater. Now I would say that he really didn't make arguments. He actually just made uh, rhetorical. He was very good with rhetoric, but he really didn't actually make arguments if you follow what he's saying closely. Mm -hmm. But um, it's also kind of a, a side point. So I got really into atheism, and I thought that my mom was wrong. I thought that Christians were wrong. I thought that Christianity was a death cult. And I thought that uh, I was basically smarter than, you know, 95% of the population of the world because I had figured out that religion was all uh, made up and a fairy tale. And, you know, I had seen through it with my, you know, brilliant 20-year-old mind or 18-year-old mind. You know, that's how a lot of atheists think, by the way, is that they're smarter than you because they've realized that you've fallen for a con. You know, that's how they kind of think of things. It's a superiority thing. And it feels good to think that way, you know, especially if you have a big ego. So I guess the first thing that really got me asking questions, and I'll never forget this. Uh, it happened in, I think, 2012. So I would have been 22 at this time. The first thing that got me asking big questions was a show with Sam Harris. And he was talking to Ben Affleck on the Bill Maher show. And some of you might recall this because it actually made quite a few waves. And I heard about it because I watched a lot of YouTube. But what happened was Sam Harris was making a very reasonable argument, at least I thought. And he was saying that if we don't like Christians, if we're trepidatious about Christianity because they're conservative and that's wrong because we're liberals, then we should be even more reluctant or even more against Islam because they are more conservative, far more conservative, and they're also responsible for far more attacks in the world, you know, uh, terrorist attacks. So I was thinking, of course, that that totally tracks. That makes perfect sense. He's not saying anything that is wrong there. We should be more against, you know, if conservatism is bad, then we should be more against people that are more conservative, obviously. But then Ben Affleck, who I know was an atheist, also, and who would agree with Sam Harris that we should be against conservatism. But Ben Affleck suddenly surprises me and he starts calling Sam Harris a racist. And he wasn't even addressing the argument that Sam Harris was making. He was just slandering him on national TV in front of everybody. And I couldn't believe that. I thought that that was just absolutely absurd for Ben Affleck to do that and that he was absolutely wrong. But what surprised me even more was that about half of the atheists in the community supported Ben Affleck. See, I was thinking that atheists were incredibly intelligent. And I couldn't fathom why so many super intelligent beings like myself would think that Ben Affleck had made a point in calling Sam Harris racist. I mean, for, I mean, just think about it. It's not even a race that Sam Harris was criticizing it was a religion anybody of any race can be islamic can be a muslim so even the name calling itself was completely absurd how could you support that right um but half of the atheists actually supported it and i was just completely lost as to why that would be and there was this new thing rising up called atheism plus in those days and it was atheism plus feminism. So the wokeness was starting to basically creep into atheism. 
We weren't calling it wokeness. Nobody really knew what it was. Well, I certainly didn't. Um, but there was something that was in the atheist movement that was taking over uh, big parts of it that I totally did not agree with because I was listening to these atheist plus people talk about feminism and how women get paid less. And I'm looking into these claims and I'm, you know, just realizing that it really doesn't follow at all. Men just simply work more hours. They don't have babies. They tend to go into jobs that pay more, you know, so to think that because when you take the totality of the money that men make and the totality of the money that women make, that means that women get paid less for working equal hours in the same job. This is a complete non sequitur. And I don't know how anybody doesn't understand that. Um, but even as an atheist, I totally understood that. And I thought that it was just nonsense, just like all the other arguments for feminism. And I was for feminism, but I just didn't understand why it was still being pushed and why women were acting like victims still. So I'm just saying all that to say that there was a lot of things that were coming to my awareness that I did not understand because I'm thinking, how are people making these terrible arguments with these horrible statistics that don't make any sense if you just think about it for two seconds? And how, how are such smart, enlightened beings as atheists buying this and fighting for it and thinking that this should be compelling and that it's important? I just couldn't understand where it was coming from. Where is all this leftist stuff coming from? And I didn't really know it was leftist stuff. I considered myself a leftist. Um, I was never a communist, but I was for abortion at one point. And, you know, I was definitely in support of gay marriage and things like that. So I was definitely on the left side of things. But this, this caused a huge rift in the atheist movement. And a lot of people may remember there were a lot of YouTube videos where there were atheists that were criticizing, uh, you know, like uh, Carl Benjamin. Um, I'm drawing a blank on what his uh, YouTube name is, but he's one that uh, would criticize um, uh, these leftists, even though he was also an atheist. And there were a lot of YouTube channels that were atheists that would criticize these far left atheists who were saying all these absurd leftist things, and making these horrible arguments. And so I was on the right side of that. I, I was definitely in support of the what I thought were rational atheists who were going against these irrational atheists. And I'm, I'm just wondering, where is this coming from? Where is it coming from? I couldn't understand it. And uh, it wasn't for many years later that I actually figured it out where it was coming from. And I'll get to that. But uh, that was the first thing with Ben Affleck that really got me seriously questioning, you know, like just asking questions, really kind of introspecting and trying to figure something out about atheism that I just wasn't figuring out. I didn't know. So the next, I guess, big thing that, uh, that happened to me was that I was, I think I was about 25 or 24 and I was really big into CrossFit at this time. And there was this CrossFitter named Rich Froning and he had won the games about three or four times in a row. I think it was four times the CrossFit games and I really looked up to him because he was a great competitor and he's just a real gentleman. And I, I, I'm very competitive myself, so I respect people like that. And I, I was watching a video of him. It was a Netflix documentary. I'm watching this Netflix documentary of Rich Froning and it's showing him with his family. It's showing just basically what he did day to day. 
And I keep thinking to myself, man, this, what a great guy, you know, over and over again. I'm just thinking, what a great guy. Look at how his kids adore him. Look how he spends time with his family. What a great guy. Well, then he goes and he sits down with his family to eat and they pray. And I immediately dismissed him. I immediately dismissed him and I said, well, he's just a stupid Christian. But then I thought to myself, wait a second, wait a second. If I were to be deployed, because I'm in the military, I thought if I were to be deployed, who would I want with me? Would I want Rich Froning with me or would I want an atheist with me? Because I'd had a lot of dealings with atheists, you know, I considered them to be friends, but I didn't have a lot of respect for the character of the atheists that I was dealing with most of the time, actually, probably pretty much all the time. They tended to be hedonist, even though I didn't really know what that word meant at the, at the time, meaning that they only pursued their their lusts of the flesh, you know, um, so fornication, drugs, things like that. So I thought, what kind of man would I want to be with me if I was downrange, if I were deployed? Would I want Rich Froning or would I want one of these atheists that I know? And when I thought about it like that, I was like, well, Rich Froning, obviously. I'd take one rich froning at my side in a situation like that over 10,000 atheists that I knew. And it's not even a, a close question. I mean, I wouldn't even blink twice. It would be like rich froning. He'd have my back. He would carry me off. He would be there to the bitter end. It's like no question in my mind about that man's character. And I don't feel I didn't feel like most atheists or really hardly any of them would be that way. And so that got me thinking, you know, who's really the good guys here? Is it the Christians or is it the atheists? Because if I want to go deploy with someone like Rich Froning, and a lot of Christians are like Rich Froning, and a lot of atheists aren't like Rich Froning at all. They're actually uh, conniving and backbiting and, um, you know, they, they don't really have any moral character. They're just constantly virtue signaling. And I'm not going to act like I was much better. I really wasn't. But I was able to re recognize the qualities of Rich Froning versus the qualities of people like myself at the time. You know, I just realized, you know, who are the good guys here? It's the Christians, really, that are the good guys. It's not the atheists. You know, we're, we're all fighting amongst ourselves. Uh, but we, you know, for all the bluster that atheists give about caring about people and, you know, human rights and everything, when you actually go and you listen to the things that they talk about when they talk with each other, they're talking about drugs, they're talking about women, um, you know, they're talking about pornography, they're talking about movies. It's all superfluous. It's all meaningless. It's all, it's nothing um, really deep or meaningful about what they think about or what they care about. And I cared about truth. You know, even though I was an atheist, I did care about the truth. And that was one thing that I'm really thankful for. And one thing that I wish more atheists actually cared about, and I don't think that they do. Um, but I'll, I might talk about that in a bit. Wendell, did you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to jump in here really quick. You know, based on what you've been telling me about your experience with uh, atheists and, and going back to your, uh, your comments on Hitchens there, to me, it almost is like they, they buy into this uh, very uh, sophist type of, of view of reality where 
basically truth is whatever can benefit you, whatever you can pass it off as. And so they're really not concerned about any objective truth, but it's more or less just this idea of elevating ourselves using whatever means necessary in order to accomplish whatever goals we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the things that I try to make people aware of is that the vast majority of people believe what they believe because they want it to be true, not because they have good reasons. The reasons come in order to justify what they want to be true. It's not the other way around most of the time. And that's especially true, I believe, for atheists. They're not atheists because they have good reasons. They have the reasons because they want to live life as they see fit, to do as thou wilt, as Alistair Crowley said. They want to be their own little gods, and that's how I was. You know, I'll also mention that as an atheist, I was incredibly mean to people. Even when I was growing up, um, I loved giving people a hard time. I have this very special ability, and it is an ability to know, and I still have this, but I know when I talk to somebody what their insecurities are. It doesn't take me very long to figure it out. And I know the things to say to them that will cause them to feel those insecurities. And I know how to say it in such a way that they won't be able to come at me. So basically, I like to press people's buttons. That's how I was. Um, and so it was usually a miserable experience for people that would deal with me because I would be pressing their buttons, pressing on their insecurities. And this gave me a great sense of... Um, self-worth, I guess, you know, it's really mental bullying, but I used to do that a lot. I did to my brother and my sister, and I would do it to my coworkers and, you know, pretty much anybody that came into contact with me. I just was not a very pleasant person. I mean, my wife, who's listening, the uh, feminist turned housewife, she's in here. She'll tell you that when she first met me, we were both atheists and I had almost no empathy for anybody. You know, she would say, well, don't you care? And I'd just be like, no, I, I really don't care, you know, like you can, uh, if you want to leave me, then leave me. I, it doesn't matter, really. Um, so I was just really a cold hearted person. But anyway, that's, uh, I just wanted to kind of touch on that. I'll get to back to the story now. So I guess the next part of the story, yeah, the next part of the story would be when I talked to my cousin, because I was really wondering I had basically come to the conclusion that the Christians were the good guys, and I was becoming more conservative in my thinking, even though I was still very cold-hearted and everything. But I was talking to my cousin about these things. I was saying, you know, where's all this leftist stuff coming from? And, and you know, it seems like the Christians are the good guys. And he said, you know, Daniel, there's actually a book that I think you could really benefit from reading. And he told me the name of the book. And the book was The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And a lot of people that are listening to this probably haven't read that book. But I think you should because it's very interesting. And it's interesting, well, it's very interesting to me because Jonathan Haidt, who's a liberal, basically studied the moral foundations of liberalism versus conservatism. Conservatism. And he was asking the question, why is it that we're looking at the same facts, the same things, but we're having such grave moral disagreements between conservatives and liberals? Why is that? And so he studied morality. And what he found was that liberals 
tend to operate on only two of five moral pillars. And I actually uh, pulled up the picture because I wanted to say what they were real quick. So there's the care harm pillar, and then there's fairness or cheating, and then there's loyalty slash betrayal, authority slash subversion, and sanctity slash degradation. And liberals are only working off of two out of those five pillars. They're working on the care harm and the fairness cheating. Um, and conservatives are actually utilizing all five of those pillars. And that's why if you ask most liberals, you say something to them like, is it okay for a brother and sister to, um, to fornicate with each other as long as they can't get pregnant? Well, in a liberal's mind, they're just going to be doing, okay, well, is there harm? Well, there's no harm because they can't have a baby that might be uh, malformed or whatever. So if there's no harm, then yeah, what's, what's the problem? Whereas a conservative is going to look at that and they're evaluating that question with five pillars, not just care, harm, and fairness. And with the, the fifth pillar, which I think was um, sanctity slash degradation, that um, is a taboo idea. So because it's taboo and it, it evokes the disgust um, in us, then a conservative would say, absolutely not. That is something that a brother and sister should not do because they have an idea of the sacred. And a brother-sister relationship should be strictly brother-sister. And so I found, I'll get back to the book, I found this book very fascinating because it explained why so many liberals were so wrong on so many moral questions. And by this time, I had probably come around to believing that even abortion was wrong. I know it happened. I don't know if it had happened before or after I read the book. But uh, just one second. Let me get the door for my wife. She's just getting home. Hey, sweetheart. So I was reading this book and realizing, you know, starting to really understand some of the issues that I'd had with uh, liberalism and, and with the atheist movement for all this time. And it was putting a little bit of the pieces together. I hadn't put it all together, but it definitely helped a lot. And it helped me understand even better why Christians were the good guys, because they were literally operating on uh, five moral pillars. And, and their concept of morality was much uh, more deep than the liberals, whose morality is incredibly shallow. So I guess the next thing that happened that was really probably the biggest thing um, as far as my journey and everything was that. I guess, let me think, I think I was about 27 when this happened, but I went into a Discord space, and for those of you who don't know what Discord is, it's just an app where people can talk to each other, kind of like what we're doing right now, and they can talk using voice or whatever, um, but I went into this Discord app like I had done before, and there's this politics channel, and for some reason, I think I was out walking my dog, I was at a dog park. And I just decided to go in there and they wanted to talk to me because I was a newcomer and they hadn't seen me before. So I started talking to them and it turned out that they were a bunch of atheists and they were questioning me. And that room in the politics server is very contentious. I mean, they really like to grill you. And I was explaining my beliefs and things like that. And 
for some reason, morality came up. I don't remember exactly how, but I mentioned that I thought that it was wrong to do something. And they said, well, do you mean subjectively wrong or do you mean objectively wrong? And I said, objectively wrong, of course. And they said, I thought you said you were an atheist. And I said, I am. And they said, well, you do know that atheists can't justify or account for objective morality, right? And remember, this is a room full of atheists, okay? And I said, well, that's total nonsense. Sorry, go oh, ahead. Wayne. No, I was going to say that's actually, you know, that, that shocks me because most of the time yeah, an atheist would not too. admit that. It shocked me, believe me, because I'd never heard atheists say that. Um, and now I try to tell atheists that because most of the atheists I talk to are completely clueless on this. But anyway, yeah, I was absolutely shocked. You know, I was saying, well, what, what are you talking about? Um, there are moral facts, you know, because even though I was an atheist and I was a hedonist and I was addicted to pornography and every all the rest of it. I still thought that things like rape were objectively wrong, you know, like there were moral facts about our reality. And it didn't matter what my opinion was. It didn't matter if the whole world suddenly said that rape is okay to do. It would still be wrong. That's what I thought. And I still think that, um, you know, I think that that's just obvious. And I don't know how anybody in their right mind can disagree with that. You know, things like rape and child molestation and murder and you name it. These things are just wrong, and it doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's wrong, you know, but um, I felt very strongly that they were wrong, and what they did was they explained Hume's guillotine. So they, they said, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. If you're going to be an atheist, you can't believe in objective moral values and duties. You, you can't justify it because of Hume's guillotine, and there are some other issues as well that they brought up, but the main one was Hume's guillotine. So I'll explain that real quick. Hume's guillotine says that you cannot derive an ought from an is. So if there's no God, then all we have is what is, meaning just the things that are with us, just the way that the world is. And you can't derive an ought from it. For example, just because my house is green does not mean that it follows that my house should be blue. Okay. Even if I tell you a long story about how my house became green, you know, like there was this person and then there was that person who painted it this color and that color, you know, and I give you this whole long spiel about how my house came to be green. It doesn't follow that my house should remain green or should change colors or anything. You can't deduce what color my house should be from what color my house is. And a lot of atheists just cannot understand this concept that you cannot derive an ought from an is because they'll say well we have evolution you know evolution explains morality no it doesn't all you're doing is giving me a spiel explaining why human beings are the way that they are why they have these values that does not get you an ought that just explains why we behave the way that we behave that doesn't even tell you that the way we behave is good it just says here's a thing that is human behavior. And that's all you have. You have no oughts. You have no obligations. You have no values. You're telling me a story, just like I told you a story about how my house came to be painted green. So they explained this to me, the is-ought fallacy, which Hume came up with, and it has not been refuted yet. He's still absolutely correct. 
And I set out after that. I said, you guys are all wrong. That can't be the case. Atheism is true. I still thought atheism was true. Uh, I said, atheism is true and morality is true and you're just wrong and I'm going to go and I'm going to prove it, right? So I set out for the next, I think, at least two to three years to prove them wrong. And I studied this question, the is ought fallacy. Uh, I studied it quite a bit in depth. And I also, you know, I tried to come up with all these different philosophical justifications for how morality could be objective without invoking a God. And at the end of the day, I just completely failed. I failed miserably. Couldn't do it. And so then I had a real dilemma on my hands, you know, what am I going to do? Because I think that atheism is true, but I, atheism, you know, these atheists were correct. I cannot account for objective morality within an atheist worldview, within that frame. It just can't be done. They were right. So what am I going to do? Am I going to stay an atheist and uh, admit that morality is subjective and say, hey, I don't like rape. That's my preference. But if you want to go rape somebody, including me, hey, that's your preference. You know, go right ahead. Your opinion is just as valid as mine, man. You know, like to each their own. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. I was not willing to accept that. So that really put me in a pickle. And it made me seriously start evaluating and being critical of atheism. Because if atheism couldn't justify or account for something I knew that was true, like objective morality, well, were there any other problems with atheism? And I started to seriously look at the worldview of atheism and what it could actually give me. Because it couldn't give me objective morality. I had figured that out. So were there any other problems? And it turns out there were. And what I realized, being actually critical about atheism, which atheists do not do, they will not criticize their own worldview. The vast majority of them will not do this. But what I realized was that, wait a second, I'm being a hypocrite. And what I mean by that is I was making the argument that I haven't seen God. That's why I don't believe in God. You show me God. You let me smell God. You show me a miracle. You, you do something in front of me that proves God empirically, meaning based on my sense data. I'll believe in God. Okay, that's what you I was You're kind of running into the, uh, the divine hiddenness issue at this point. Well, what do you mean by that? Like there's an objection to the existence of God. They call it divine mm. hiddenness. Like he's hidden. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Since we can't perceive him through empirical, empirical data. Yeah. Uh, and that's an objection that you will run into sometimes uh, with, with several right. atheists. Well, I, actually, I think it's the vast majority of them that, because they're saying, well, I haven't seen physical evidence. You have to give me scientific, verifiable proof that God exists. And unless you give me that, then I'm not going to believe in it. And that's what I was saying. I said, you give me a scientific study, you give me some kind of scientific data, some kind of observation that I can make with my senses, and I'll believe in God. And what I realized was that, wait a second, when I say that, I'm making an argument. And all arguments are appealing to what? They're appealing to logic. So I believe in logic because I'm making an argument and I'm appealing to logic. Well, that means that I must believe that logic exists. Well, have I ever seen a scientific study 
that proves that logic exists? Of course not. Had I ever seen logic with my own two eyes? Did I have any physical evidence whatsoever that logic existed and was a real thing? No, I had absolutely no evidence whatsoever that logic was a real thing. And not only that, but I didn't believe that there was any evidence that logic existed as a physical thing. So here I am believing in this thing called logic with zero scientific or sense data evidence for its existence. That's called hypocrisy. Okay. And if any atheists are listening to this, that's hypocrisy. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to set forth a standard, be consistent, be consistent. And I realized I wasn't being consistent. And at this point, I went and I talked to an atheist friend of mine who was on Discord. And we had talked a lot. We, we had known each other for years, at least three years. We would talk for hours on Saturdays. And usually it was about how stupid Christians were and stuff like that. But um, on this particular occasion, I went to him with this question. Because I, was, I, I still thought that atheism was true. But I was starting to have doubts, right? Because I, I said to him, listen, here I am using this argument for why I don't believe in God. I'm saying that I need this sense data. I need this particular type of proof in order to believe in things. And yet I believe in logic and I have none of that scientific proof. I have none of that for my belief in logic. And what he said to me, I'll never forget. It also surprised me a lot. He said, if you keep asking questions like this, you will not be an atheist for very long. That's what he said. And he was right. Um, I did keep asking questions like that because when people tell me things like that, it makes me want to ask more questions. You know, I wanted an answer. I said, hey, why are we believing in logic if we don't have any empirical evidence for it? You know, it's a valid question. At least I think it is. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that was his response. So I, I dug some more and I started realizing, well, it's not even just logic. There's a whole bunch of other things that I have no empirical evidence for that I believe. For, exa for example, I believe that my reasoning is sound. What's the justification for sound reasoning? Where's the evidence for that? You actually can't give any. It's totally... Um, question begging to even try to justify or account for your reasoning being sound. And I said I was against question begging. You know, that's what atheists say all the time. They'll give lip service to it. I said, you can't beg the question. You can't say that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. That's question begging. You know, I don't allow question begging. That's that's a fallacy. But in order to justify my belief that my reasoning was valid, I had to appeal to my reasoning. The very thing that's in question. So if in order to be consistent with my skepticism of what Christians were saying, I would need to be consistent and stop thinking that my reasoning was sound and basically just stop reasoning and stop relying on my reasoning, which would mean that I couldn't make any arguments for or against God. And really, I probably couldn't even eat. I should just pretty much lay down and die. Right. Well, I wasn't going to do that. But I realized that that was another big problem with my um, epistemology. And I guess I haven't really used that word, so I'll explain that for people that don't know. But epistemology has to do with um, how we can know a thing is real or true. So how do you know that something is true? Well, the way that we 
form beliefs about what we think is true is called our epistemology. And so my epistemology was an empiricist. I was saying that uh, I needed empirical data in order to prove or in, in order to believe in something as true. But here I found I was making all these exceptions like logic. And just to touch on logic again, in order to prove logic, you have to beg the question because you have to assume the very thing that you're trying to prove. If somebody says, how do you account for, how do you justify your belief in logic? I'm going to have to use logic in order to prove it. You can't, um, you can't not use logic in order to prove logic. That would be illogical. But that begs the question because, once again, you're using logic in order to prove logic. Okay. So yeah, that's you're getting into uh, an issue of a circular reasoning on that. Yes. Exactly. Even the statement itself that a lot of atheists seem to miss is you will hear this from uh, several atheists, the only source of truth is science. But of course, that very statement itself is untestable. That's you exactly know? right. Yes. Empiricism and the and scientism is inherently um, self-defeating. If you say the only way to know something is through empiricism, well, that statement, the only way to know something is through empiricism, is not empirically verifiable. And so it, it cannot be true empirically. And therefore, empiricism as a uh, epistemology is self-defeating. Like it came and get off its own grounds for rejecting claims. Um, but I didn't realize that yet. I just wanted to cover that. So... So, yeah, I realized that there were actually a whole bunch of things that I believed without any physical evidence. And, um, you know, like logic, I believed in my ability to reason. I believed in this thing called the self, which was me, you know, like there's actually a person that's having these thoughts. I believed in that. That cannot be proven with science. Um, I also believed in morality, which you can't prove with science. You know, um, I believed in numbers. You can't prove numbers with science. A lot of atheists think if you hold up two fingers that that's like a two. That's not an actual two. That's just a representation of a two. You know, there's no there's no actual two floating around in space somewhere. Or, you know, you've never held a real two in your hands. All we have is numericals, which are representations of twos. But numbers themselves are conceptual. And yet we believe in them. You know, so there's a whole bunch of things that I realized I was believing and I was making exceptions for and shouldn't be believing based on my rejection of God. So that's a huge problem, right? Because either I'd be a total hypocrite. I had three options. Okay. I think it was three. Either I'd be a complete hypocrite and I say, well, I need all these criteria to be met in order to believe in God, but I'll just make an exception for all these criteria to be met in order to believe in logic or my ability to reason or numbers or morality you know, I don't need that criteria to be met for all the things that I want to be true. But when it comes to God, yeah, no, now I need that stuff, all that criteria to be met. So that's being a total hypocrite. So I could continue to be a total hypocrite, um, which didn't really wash well with me because I actually cared about what was true. So that was the first option. Second option was I could uh, stop believing in all those things. I could be consistent with my epistemology. And I could just stop believing in law, uh, in the laws of logic and stop believing in my ability to reason, stop believing in morality and all these things that I needed in order to go through my life and, and live for even one more minute. I could just stop believing in all of them. Right. And I could lay down and die. So that was the second option. 
I didn't like that one very much, though. And so I left another option, which is, well, atheism, my atheism, cannot account for all these things. But I need these things in order to live, and I believe that they're true. So I need to adjust my worldview in order to account for these things. How do I account for these things? I need to change my epistemology because clearly my epistemology is not going to cut it. I need to form a new epistemology that can account for these things. And these things cannot be justified. Your ability to reason can't be justified. So that's not even in question. You can't justify these things with evidence. There's no evidence for them. But can we account for them? Meaning, can we give a good reason for why they would be the case? You know, another one is the uniformity of nature. I'll talk about that real quick because it's important. Um, and science presupposes uniformity of nature. But uniformity of nature says, will the future be like the past? Meaning, like, if I say, why do you think the sun is going to come up tomorrow? Well, you're going to say, well, because it's always come up. Well, this is called the problem of induction. Another problem that Hume actually pointed out. He had Hume's guillotine, and then he had Hume's problem of induction. And what he pointed out is, our belief that the sun will come up tomorrow is totally unjustified because you're just appealing to the past as if that makes sense to justify future knowledge, but you have no information about the future. Yeah, to- that's right. I think I've heard uh, Hume's argument put this way as well. Think of like a, a fire. Uh, we all know if we was to go touch a fire, it would burn us, but we have no reason to truly trust that the next time we touch a fire, that it will burn us. It, it could be a cold fire. Yeah, absolutely. And one illustration I, I like to make that will really, uh, I think, drive the point home is when we say, well, the sun has come up every day, so therefore we can reasonably rely on the sun coming up tomorrow. That's like walking backwards um, without knowing. So you're walking backwards and you can only see where you've walked so far and saying, well, because I haven't walked off a cliff so far, there's not a cliff behind me on the next step. You have absolutely no information about the next step. You've only gotten information about the previous steps. So we can see, hopefully, if you're listening, why that would not make any sense to say. But that's how we all think. We all think that the uniformity of nature will hold. However, in the atheist worldview, there's no good reason to believe that uniformity of nature should hold because there's no mind behind everything. There's no mind that is responsible for existence so everything is really just caused mindlessly and if everything is caused mindlessly then why would we expect for the laws of physics to hold together it should be thought by the atheists if they were to be consistent it should be thought that the fact that things have remained as they have all this time is the greatest possible coincidence all right think about it like this imagine a roulette wheel you know there's a hundred numbers on a roulette wheel at a roulette table And the uh, ball lands on 10, okay? And you're with your friend, and it lands on 10 again, and it lands on 10 again, and it lands on 10 a thousand times. And you look to your friend and say, hey, how do we explain this? It's just landed on 10 a thousand times. Well, I would say, I think the table's fixed. But what if your friend says, I don't think it's fixed. I don't think there was any intelligence behind this. I think it's just, uh, you know, I think that the table is a real table, and it's just, purely random, and this is a coincidence. Well, if he really believes that, then the next question should be, well, well, then what's it going to land on the next go around? And he should say, I have absolutely no idea. It has just as much chance of landing on any other number 
as it does on 10, right? Um, and that's how atheists should view the future. They should say, I have absolutely no idea if the next breath I take is going to be oxygen or water or fire or poison. I have absolutely no information about the future. And there's no good reason to believe that the future will be like the past because there isn't. You have to beg the question in order to make the case. So they shouldn't be assuming it. And yet all science assumes that the universe is uniform. The atheist cannot justify that or account for it in their worldview. But theism can. Because theism says, hey, the roulette, will, the roulette table is fixed. It's fixed by God, right? The universe is fixed by God. And so we can depend on the, unif the uniformity of nature. We can depend on that because there is a rational agent behind that who is keeping it fixed and stable for us, you know, for his creatures who he loves. So it makes perfect sense to believe in it and to account for it if theism is true. But if atheism is true, they should be rejecting that once again and uh, science with it. Right. So the justification for science should go out the window just on those grounds alone. So what I'm trying to say is there's all these things that I want to continue to believe that I couldn't believe within atheism and be consistent. And so I needed to change my epistemology. I needed to change my worldview. And um, that's what I was starting to realize. But then the biggest thing hit me. Uh, and I'll talk about that. The, the biggest thing that, that I realized was that atheism literally leads to a contradiction. And it actually leads to several, but I'll just talk about the one that I realized at the time. So what I realized was that knowledge is actually a huge problem for atheism. And what I mean by that is that when you talk about knowledge, you're talking about can you hold a justified, true belief? If you have knowledge, the belief must be true, it must be justified, and you have to believe it, all right, in order for it to be knowledge. Well, the problem with the atheists is that they start from themselves. And if you're an atheist, you really can't account for how you can have knowledge. Because here's the thing. Let's say that I just grant the atheist. I say, okay, you have knowledge. You say you have knowledge. Okay, you know 1% of all possible knowledge. And, you know, that's really being very, very, very generous. But say you have 1% of all possible knowledge. And he says, okay. I say, all right. So that means that there's 99% of things. Like uh, if we draw a circle and this is all possible knowledge, 99% of this circle is filled with things that you don't know. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Well, let me ask you, can all the things that you don't know prove you wrong or incorrect about the things that you think you know right now? Well, the answer should be absolutely. New information can always prove us wrong about what we think we know. But, if, but that means that everything that we think we know could be wrong. And if we could be wrong about what we think we know, then we can't know anything, okay? We can't know anything, all right? But that's a contradiction. Because when you say, I can't know anything or I don't know anything, that in itself is a knowledge claim. That is like saying the truth is there is no truth. You know, um, to say anytime you say that uh, something is false, that in itself is a truth claim. If I say this is false, X is false. Well, I'm also saying it's true that what I just said is false, is false. OK, so like um, 
somebody says that my dog is outside right now. Well, he's inside. I'm looking at him. So I would say that's false. But really, in order for that to be false, truth must exist. Okay. So what that means is that in order for falseness to exist, truth must exist first because all, all falseness requires truth to be a meaningful word, right? You couldn't, you literally couldn't have a universe where everything was false. Falseness requires truth to exist. And in the same way, ignorance requires knowledge to exist. Whenever we say we don't know, we are saying that we know that we don't know this thing. So all claims of falseness are claims of truth, and all claims of ignorance are also at the same time claims of knowledge. Because when we say we don't know, we're saying we know there's this thing that we don't know. You can't make a claim about ignorance without also making a claim about knowledge. All right, so hopefully I've made that point. And what that means then is that to know nothing is a contradiction. You can't know nothing. All right, that creates a contradiction. But the, in the atheist worldview, they can't account for how they have knowledge because they can be wrong about everything that they know and they're starting with themselves. And, and what I realized is that um, they can't account for knowledge. So atheism literally leads to this contradiction of saying, I know nothing or I can't know anything. And if atheism leads to a contradiction, well, then it can't be true. If atheism leads to a contradiction, it can't be true. And if atheism can't be true and isn't true, then guess what? That means that God exists. That's what it means. Because either atheism is true or at least one God exists. And if you want to real quick, Daniel, what you're talking about here is a positive claim derived from a negative claim. So like the atheists today, they like to state this. I, I simply lack a belief that God exists, which is a negative claim, but it actually has a positive claim entailed to it, but they want to try to deny that. Yeah, I mean, it's like saying I lack a belief that Lance Armstrong went to the moon. You're, you're, you have a belief. You know, if, if you say, like, I don't believe that vaccines are harmful, that's a belief. You know, if you say, I don't believe that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK, that's a belief. But these people just, you know, won't admit that because they're dishonest. Um, and they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But um, I'll get back to what I was saying. So I realize that atheism literally leads to this contradiction. And if atheism leads to this inherent contradiction, then there's only one other game in town, which is theism is true. It's one or the other. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. If atheism is true, then God doesn't exist. But if atheism is false, then that must mean that God exists. Well, I had realized that atheism is false. It can't be true. So therefore, God must exist necessarily. And not only does God exist, but he actually can account for how we have knowledge. Because if there's no God, we can't have knowledge. But God actually, you, you can account for knowledge because God is an all-knowing being. So remember I said, if you don't have all the knowledge, then um, if you don't know everything, then what you don't know can prove you wrong about what you claim to know. So in, in other words, what that means is that in order to know any one thing, you actually have to know everything can't know anything unless you know everything so the only way that knowledge is possible is if there's an all-knowing being all right that's the only way for knowledge to be possible for anybody is if there is an all-knowing being so if human beings have any knowledge then that must necessarily mean that there's an all-knowing being well do human beings have knowledge 
Yes, we do. We have to, because to deny our knowledge is a contradiction. So we do have knowledge. We can't deny it. We can't say, I know nothing that creates a contradiction that can't be true. So we have knowledge. How do we account for it? Well, it must be accounted for because God has created us such that we can know things, even though it's not everything, but we can know some things. And that knowledge is, must be given to us in some way by this all-knowing being. He could give us knowledge. That's possible. So that actually um, explains how we have knowledge and how Christianity or theism um, it, uh, can account for how we have knowledge. And this, this very troubling question that nobody really wants to seem to talk about. So I realized that atheism was literally a contradiction. And at this point, I'm like, okay, God exists. I was wrong. And I called my mom and I, I talked to her and I said, listen, I, I was wrong. And I know that God exists and I'm going to, I'm going to give him my life. Because I knew that if God exists, then he's good. And, you know, God can't be bad, right? So if God exists and he's all-knowing, then he's, he's the good guy. And I knew that evil existed, right? And obviously, you couldn't have an evil God. So if God exists and I'm against evil, well, shouldn't I be with the guy who's good, you know? So that's basically how I was thinking at the time. And so I, I told my mom, I'm going to... I'm going to give my life to God. She said, why don't you do it tonight? <laughs> you know, she was thinking just like I would now. Um, you only have, like, you don't know if you're going to live through the night, you know, give your life to him now. Like, just, just do it. But I didn't, I didn't do it because I wanted to sin more. That's the honest truth. I wouldn't have put it that way at the time, but I wanted to sin more. I wanted to keep watching porn. I was totally addicted to pornography at the time, which is a huge problem for men and Christian men in today's day and age. Uh, and we really don't talk about it very often. We really should. But yeah, I was completely addicted to pornography and I wanted to keep doing my thing. You know, I had realized philosophically that God exists, but I wanted to keep living for myself a little bit longer. You know, I want my freedom. That's really what it boiled down to. And so I did. Um, I think I waited about three months, at least one month. But eventually, you know, I said, listen, I've, I know that God exists and I've been putting this off and I'm going to stop. And so, you know, th this isn't a typical type of Christian story, what I'm saying right now, but it is the truth. And I, I don't want to lie. But what I did was I got down on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, listen, I know that you exist. I know that you're real. And if you're real, then I want to serve you and I want to give you my life and I want to spend the rest of my life serving you. And I don't really care what that means for me, but I just want to I just want to serve you and, and live the rest of my life serving you because you're good and I know that I'm not. And that that was the prayer that I prayed. And I, it was pretty much the first prayer that I had prayed since being a child. And I remember I, I stood up from that prayer and I walked outside and I looked up at the stars because it was nighttime. And I looked up at the stars and I thought, wow, God exists. And I realized in, the, in that moment, you know, I'm looking at the, the sky and I'm looking around me and I had this silliest grin on my face and I'm thinking to myself I've always known that God is real 
I, I've been lying to myself. Of course God exists. Why have I been lying to myself? I've always known. He's always been there. He's always been there and I've always known it. And I realized that the world is actually a very magical place because there's this mind behind it, you know, and it's it's incredible um, when you think about it, that there's this, there, there actually is a, a being that is transcendent and above us all and who created us and who cares about us. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. And we don't just live in this blind, pitiless, indifferent universe like some people will, will tell you. But no, the universe uh, has a meaning and a purpose. Uh, and we have a meaning and a purpose. And that is unbelievably amazing, you know? And so I just, I'm walking to Chow and I have this really stupid grin on my face. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that night. And um, I guess the next thing that happened to me it's kind of funny because my wife, who when I met her, she was an atheist, but she got saved about a month before me, and she didn't even really tell me, I don't think. But, um, yeah, she got saved about a month before me. She got saved in a more traditional type of way um, where she was told the gospel, and she was like uh, – she was told the gospel by a man at her work who um, she really respected. And he explained it to her and she was like, wow, no Christian has ever explained that to me in, in a way where it made sense. And she was actually receptive to it and she accepted it and went home and prayed and, and became a Christian that night. It's incredible. So she has kind of a more traditional type of story than I do. But what I'll say, because I know I haven't really talked about the gospel, is that I after after giving God my life, I heard the gospel about two weeks later about how Jesus Christ had died for our sins and that we were all sinners and we were guilty before God and, and that God and that God had sent his son to earth to pay the price for us, for our sins, because he loved us so much. And that uh, basically Jesus was crushed for our sin by God. Um, you know, he was given the wrath. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for us, for all of us. Um, when I heard that, suddenly it all clicked together and it made sense to me. I was like, wait, that's what Christians have been saying all this time is the most bizarre thing because I'd heard it a million times before and it never made any sense. You know, why, why does God have to send his son to, to earth? You know, and why, what do you mean I'm a sinner? But suddenly it made sense to me. And, uh, and I was like, well, I, I, I was on the fence kind of about what God it was that I was praying to, but now I knew it was, it was Christianity. Christianity was true. Um, and so from that time on, I was a Christian, you know, and I, I called my mom up and I told her and everything. And she was just so happy to hear that. Sorry, Wendell, did you want to say something? Uh, no. So basically, I was kind of following your story here. And you've kind of given me uh, tones of like Anthony Flew and his conversion journey. And for those who don't know Anthony Flew, he was a, uh, a prominent uh, English philosopher taught at the University of Oxford philosophy and of course was one of the authors of the humanist manifesto he was like a a hero to atheist and of course several years ago Anthony Flew's now passed away but he actually had a change of mind and he went from being an atheist to a deist a deist he never quite made it to Christianity I don't believe and so that's what I was going to ask you but you've already covered that part the apologetics you know the logic the contradiction that, that brought you to understand that atheism was false and that theism was true. And I was going to ask you then 
you know, what brought you from theism to Christianity, but you've, you just covered that quite nicely. Yeah, it was hearing the gospel and I, I just realized like, oh my gosh, it, this actually makes sense. And, um, and I just knew kind of like, uh, my wife did that it was the truth. And, um, you know, it's kind of hard to explain to people that don't, haven't had the experience, but, you know, if you have had the experience, it's, it's kind of like explaining what, um, a hot stove feels like to someone who can't feel pain. You know, we know what it feels like, but you just don't. And we know that that stove is hot, but if you can't feel pain, you really don't know what we know. Um, and it's kind of like that, that that's how I would, that's the best way I could put it right now. But once, once I realized that Christianity was true, then I, uh, started reading the Bible, you know, my wife and I, we, we, we had started going to a very, uh, liberal church and we felt like something was just wrong. And, um, luckily we started listening to brother Spencer Smith, who, um, he's this YouTuber for people who don't know. And he was saying how the Bible needs to be your foundation, you know, and I thought that made a lot of sense, you know, um, that the Bible should be our foundation, you know, like if, it, if the Bible isn't your foundation for, as a Christian, then what is you, your reasoning, because based on my reasoning, I wouldn't think that uh, a man could come back from the dead. You know, uh, Christianity doesn't make any sense to my reasoning, but I knew Christianity was true. And I knew that based on my reasoning, you know, my reasoning would lead to rejecting logic and all that. So I wasn't really too keen on on just reasoning independently from God anymore. So I needed a, a real foundation. And the Bible being the foundation made perfect sense to me. And so he said, you know, you need to get into a fundamentalist church. And um, he gave out this website where you type in your zip code and um, it puts you in a, in a good fundamentalist church. And we've been in that church now for about uh, three years. And it's just been an incredible blessing. I mean, a lot of, there are churches that aren't very good and, and there are a lot of hypocrites in Christianity. But the church that I'm in, I think it's one of the best in, in, in America. It's small, but the the people there really care about each other and, and it's incredibly welcoming, but I know people aren't really here to hear that. So I'm just trying to kind of fill in a little bit of the rest of the story. What I'll also say though, I do want to say this is that when I got saved, suddenly things that I thought were just totally fine were not fine anymore because I used to swear all the time. And my wife was even worse than me. She was like twice as bad. She was horrible. She would make a sailor blush. And I'm not kidding. She was bad. We both had filthy mouths. Even when I was talking to my mom, I had no respect, you know, and I used to love to push people's buttons. I was totally addicted to porn. I loved Hollywood movies and I loved uh, rock and roll and all this kind of stuff. I, we both smoked. We both, uh, or I, I liked to gamble. I loved playing poker and all this stuff. And suddenly I'm realizing, wait a second, why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, I, I would hear somebody swear and use like the F word. And I would think, why did they do that? That wasn't even necessary. That wasn't needed. You know, and I'd hear people take the Lord's name in vain. You know, and I would think, why did they why did they have to take the Lord's name in vain? And I think, wait a second, I'm taking the Lord's name in vain. Why am I doing that? You know, I just started to be like convicted about these things and my perspective started to change about uh, things that I thought were totally fine. You know, I didn't get down on my knees and pray to God thinking that he was going to 
change all these things about me because these things I thought were fine. I didn't think of them as sins or as wrong, or I didn't think that they, they were wrong at all. But suddenly I started to realize, wait, they, they kind of are wrong. They're actually really wrong and I need to stop doing them. You know, and, and God just kind of changed my, uh, my perception of these things. You know, I don't even, I used to love Hollywood movies. I mean, I had a passion for film and now I mean, the last movie I watched was, um, it was uh, The Sound of Freedom. That's the last time I went to the movies. And the time before that was probably like six months bef- uh, before that. My wife asked me to go see Guardians of the Galaxy. But I almost never go to the movies to see anything um, because Hollywood just puts out filth all the time. You know, and they always take the Lord's name in vain. And I just lost my taste for that. Um, and I lost my taste for rock and roll. And I lost my taste for gambling and we both quit smoking, you know, all, and, and the biggest miracle that I want to say, which I thought was never going to stop, was that uh, I, I was able to stop watching pornography, um, which is just incredible to me. I mean, people act like miracles don't happen, but I had a problem, a very serious problem. I mean, at first when I would try to stop, like I started being convicted about it and I started trying to 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 get to get away from it and i would go for like two weeks without going to it and then something would just come over me like an urge that i just could not resist it was like i was possessed and i would just go you know it's like i couldn't control myself at all i thought i'm never going to be able to stop doing this and i'll bet that there are men who will listen to this and and they know what i'm talking about it can't be only me and uh yeah, I just didn't think I would ever be free of it, but I prayed about it. And one day I talked to um, my wife about it. Um, I think she was still my girlfriend at the time. It was around the time we got married. Uh, But I talked to her and I said, listen, I have this problem. I know it's a problem. And I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to ask me like every day or every week um, if I've watched it. Because I won't lie to you. I love you and I won't lie to you. And I'm not going to want to tell you the truth, but I will. And if I'm doing it, I need you, you know, we'll go from there. But I think that that might help. And she said, okay. And believe it or not, since that day, which was at least, I think, three years ago, I have not watched pornography one time, not one time. All right. And the other stuff that goes along with pornography, I haven't been doing any of that either. You know, sex has been completely with my wife and only with my wife. That's it. Even when she's been pregnant and given birth and we haven't been able to do anything for six weeks, zero porn, none. All right. Now that is a miracle in my eyes. If you know me and you know how I was and I do, that is a miracle. And I just praise God for that. And I I just want to, you know, tell, speak to the men in here that might be listening to this and have this problem, this horrible addiction that, uh, pornography is evil, but God can take it from you. I know that from personal experience, he can, he can remove that from you. Um, and you know, I, I found somebody that I cared about to hold me accountable and, and that worked for me. Um, but ultimately God gets the glory for that. Cause, um, that's not something I could have ever done on my own strength, you know? So I just wanted to say that, um, these changes happened to me that I didn't think were going to happen, that I didn't think needed to happen. And yet they happened all, you know, nonetheless, uh, my life completely changed. I no longer wanted to 
be mean to people and to press their buttons. I just, uh, you know, actually I started to care about people, even my enemies. And I no longer held any resentment for people. Um, I just cared about them and and loved them, you know? Um, So I I just wanted to, to say that, that God, Jesus Christ completely changed my life. 180 degrees, you know, anyway, I feel like I've been talking a lot. You're doing great, Daniel. And, and I certainly appreciate that testimony. I mean, I've, I've, what you described there, of course, was, was an addiction, addiction to pornography, but I have seen God deliver people from other addictions as well. Drug addiction is a big thing here in Kentucky. Uh, the Commonwealth of Kentucky it is battling a huge opioid epidemic. And I have seen Jesus get in people's lives and turn them completely around, remove that drive because their testimony echoed you know, a lot what you were saying there. It's just no matter how hard they tried to resist, it was almost like they were possessed. And it's like this demon inside of them was driving them to keep using. And, and it took Jesus to truly break that chain. They, they had tried therapy. They had tried, you know, substance abuse treatment centers and things like that. But it was ultimately the gospel and Jesus that was able to deliver them from that. And, and that truly is miraculous. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, that, and that's one of the things that I think about a lot when people uh, question Christianity is I'm, I'm like, I have a personal experience of being changed by God in ways that I wouldn't have even fathomed in ways I wasn't even trying. I didn't, I didn't, you know, become a Christian thinking I'm going to do this because I, I need to be a become a better person. I thought I was a great person, you know, like I knew I wasn't perfect, but, uh, the things that God started pointing out to me, I didn't know those were even problems. You know, it was like asking a fish if, uh, if it's wet, it's gonna be like, what are you talking about? You know, it's just that, that's just how things were. So, um, I guess we could, you know, if you want, we could talk about the, the moral argument a bit and we could kind of flesh that out. Yeah, before we do that, uh, is there any questions for Daniel? I guess I just explained everything so well that no one has any questions. You did an excellent job, Daniel. So, yeah, we'll go ahead and proceed (laughs) to the moral argument. Okay. Uh, Well, what I want to say as far as the moral argument goes, um, a lot of atheists really just do not understand um, the argument. I talked about the is ought gap, but um, there's actually a bunch of other problems for theism or sorry, for atheism to um, account for objective morality. One of them is that in order for morality to be objective, you need objective values, meaning that when I say a value, I mean something that is valued. So like if I take my watch to the pawn shop and I say, Hey, give me $50 for this. And he says, no, the value is uh, 20. I say, no, it's 30. We're arguing about the value of the watch. Well, when we talk about objective values, we're talking about values like good and bad based on our behavior. So like if I neglect my family, that might have a value of being bad, right? If I protect my family, that might have a value of being good. But are these values subjective or are they objective? Well, in order for morality to be objective, the values must be objective. How do you get objective values from a universe that isn't even supposed to be here, from us who we're not supposed to be here? There's no intentionality behind us. We're just 
uh, random cosmic accidents, right? How do you get objective values like good and bad out of that? Now, a lot of people will say, a lot of atheists will say, well, empathy, don't you have empathy? Why is empathy good? Think about that. Why is empathy good? Well, it's not. You're just arbitrarily saying that it's good. But what is your justification for saying that empathy is good? Because if I say, well, empathy is bad, that's just as arbitrary, right? Like we can say empathy is good. We can say hatred is good. We could say suffering is good or suffering is bad. You know, um, what is the justification for making a claim like empathy is objectively good? How are you getting that? You know, because you're a subject and I'm a subject and I might see things differently. I might disagree with you. So how do you prove me wrong when you say empathy is good and I say, no, empathy is bad? How do you prove that? You know, um, you, you can't from an atheist worldview. You cannot justify objective values. And I already covered why you can't justify objective duties because of Hume's guillotine. You also need free will, because if we're all determined, then none of our choices mean anything. They're all determined outside of us. So you can't have morality if if we don't have the choice to have done otherwise. So objective morality also requires free will, right? Because if somebody else is making us do all the things that we do, then we can't be moral. We're just like a rock rolling down a hill. You know, if a rock rolls down a hill, a giant boulder rolls down a hill and it crushes a family as they're driving, uh, you know, to a vacation or whatever. Um, We don't say the rock is bad. You know, we say, well, well, that's unfortunate. You know, it's a tragedy. But we don't say the rock did anything bad. It was just doing what it did based on responding to the laws of physics. It didn't have uh, the possibility of doing other than it did. Right. So in order for morality to be objective, you also have to have free will. How do you account for and justify free will if there's no God? If there's no God, then all of our choices, all of our beliefs are just determined by cause and effect, by the universe, um, the, the physical constants. You know, It's atoms that are spinning in our head in a particular way at a particular frequency. And just because those atoms have to happen to be in a certain way and cause and effect, that's where we get our beliefs from. That's where we get, uh, that's why we do the things that we do. It's not because we actually get to choose. It's all determined, you know, it's like winding up a watch and letting it play out. So, um, atheism cannot justify or account for free will, which you need. Um, so that's, what is that? That's three. Another thing that you need in order to account for objective moral values and duties is uh, an objective standard. Okay, that means that there has to be something, whether it be right in front of us or somewhere far removed, but there has to be something that we could potentially appeal to in order to say this is right and this is wrong. You know, if I if you and I both pull out a compass and I say, okay, north is that way. And you say, wait a second, I'm looking at my compass and it says it's the opposite way. How do we determine whose compass is correct? Is there a way to do that? Because if there isn't a way to do that, uh, at least, you know, um, in theory, like maybe there's a building that we could go to with a true compass and that'll tell us whose compass is correct, right? Uh, if If that doesn't even exist, if it can't exist, then talking about who's going north is totally meaningless, right? totally meaningless why why are we talking about who's going north if uh 
there's no such thing as actual north, right? So you need an objective standard. Uh, it, actually, it has to be possible for an objective standard to exist in order to talk about a, what you ought to have done or what you're obligated to do or if you did something bad, right? There must be an objective moral standard somehow that is possible to exist. And atheism cannot in any way, shape, or form account for how an objective moral standard would exist, all right? Because we're not even supposed to be here. Life isn't even supposed to exist. It's just a coincidence. And there's no, like, there's no objective moral standard floating through space somewhere in this purely material universe or whatever. So the, uh, the Platonist, the Platonic atheist might be able to make an argument for an objective moral standard. They're not going to be able to uh, make an argument for free will, though, and these other things. But most atheists are materialistic, so it doesn't even matter to my way of thinking and platonic atheists have their own problems. Do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I was just going to real quick, put it in the, basically the moral argument into a, like a logical form here. So like premise one, we would state objective moral values and duties exist in the world. Premise two, the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values and duties is the existence of God. Therefore God exists. That's a logical valid argument. The only kickback you will see most of the time from atheists is on premise number two, but a what, a lot of what you've already explained demonstrates why, in fact, God is the best, the best explanation for these uh, objective moral values and duties. But another thing they, the atheists like to do, they always want to put the Christian in the defense, right? They, they right. want us to answer the tough questions, but we don't have to do that. We can make them the, uh, present an argument as to why they would object to premise number two, that God is the best explanation for these uh, objective moral values and duties. And anytime you do that, it's like watch, it's like watching a fish out of water. <laughs> it's kind of flop around everywhere that they can't do it. They can't ground it in anything. Right. Yeah. They, they're just um, totally clueless when it comes to these matters. I mean, I've had countless atheists because I, I like making the moral argument because to me, it's one of the big reasons why I left atheism. And so I think it's very important um, but a lot of atheists will say things to me like, well, uh, I don't need God in order to be good. You know, were you, when you were an atheist, were you going around killing people and raping everybody? And I'm like, that is not the point at all. OK. For any atheist that thinks that that is a valid point, let me explain why it's not. All right. The reason why that has absolutely nothing to do with the argument is because the argument is talking about how objective moral values and duties could exist in the first place. We're talking about the existence of these things. So the fact that I personally preferred not to go around killing people when I was an atheist has absolutely nothing to do with what is in question. Whether I preferred to go around killing people as an atheist or not doesn't address the point. The point is that the best explanation for objective moral values and duties is that God exists. I'm not saying that atheists can't do good things. Um, what I'm saying is that if atheism is true, no one can do good things because good couldn't exist, right? There could not be an objective good. It would all be preference and opinion. It's like you like uh, pineapple on your pizza. I don't, you know, you like to rape. Well, that's, that's what you like. I don't, you know, but uh, you do you. You know, nobody argues with somebody else that their preferences are wrong. I've never gotten into an argument with somebody uh, about why they shouldn't, you know, eat pineapple on their pizza. Actually, I like pineapple on my pizza. But um, 
I've never argued with somebody about that. Not seriously, anyway. It's a joke. People people talk about that like, oh, you shouldn't like cream in your coffee. What are you doing? But they do that jokingly. Nobody's serious about that. And if they, if uh, morality is subjective, then all human behavior morally should be uh, – it's just preference. So why are we arguing about it? You know, Why are we making laws? Think about this. The atheist who says that morality is subjective, and the vast majority of them do, except for the serious philosophers. Most of them say they're moral realists. But most of your run-of-the-mill atheist is going to say that morality is subjective. So let me get this straight, atheist. You're telling me that morality is just based on your preferences. And you think that because you have a preference, you should get to make laws that control other people and put them in jail for disagreeing with your subjective preferences? Is that what you're telling me? That is what they're telling you, and that's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. That's like wanting to arrest somebody for eating their pizza differently than you. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's because they really don't believe that morality is uh, subjective, but they can't ground objective morality. You know, so they're kind of forced into this absurd, you know, uh, position where they have to literally say, "Oh, it's okay to re- to arrest you for having a different preference in human behavior than me because we happen to outnumber you." You know, it's ridiculous. And it doesn't escape the old relativist trap, right? I mean, if you state that morality is subjective, you have made a truth claim in a positive sense. Therefore, the values come back into play. And it's truly inescapable to state, to even be able to try to argue that morality is subjective, you need a God. Yeah, that's that's what I realized, you know, when I was... uh an atheist trying to account for how you're going to get duties like obligations from a universe that never even planned on you uh, being here. Like, but somehow there's like this transcend transcendental oblig obligator for your human behavior. That's just, you're not going to get that from atheism. That's not going to happen. You need a God who is perfect, unchanging and able to with authority give obligations for them to mean anything now do human beings have obligations yes we all intuitively know that we do if i abandon my family you know people are going to say you are obligated to stay with them to protect them you have an obligation to watch over your daughter you're not meeting your obligations you've abandoned your family we all understand these things we all understand that we have obligations in this world moral obligations that are real you know i mean Atheists can't get away from it. They make moral claims all the time about how we have human rights. Where do human rights come from in an atheist worldview? Like, it's just absurd to think about that. Like, you're telling me you believe in, uh, the only things you believe in are scientific. Can you show me the scientific experiment that proves that human beings have rights? How's that work exactly? You know, it's just absurd. Anyway, I could go on about this for days. Yeah, I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. Uh, the moral argument is just one thing, uh, you know, in the arsenal of apologetic arguments that point to the existence of God. Uh, but kind of as we begin to wind down here and close up, uh, one of the things I want to go back to, you, you mentioned uh, discovering Brother Spencer on YouTube and him really uh, talking about the importance of a biblical worldview. Now, you know, normally we think about apologetics, we, we think about it, 
you know, providing a defense to the skeptic and to the atheist and, uh, you know, giving a defense of our faith that way. But it truly is valuable for believers as well. Uh, Ken Ham, if you know the Creation Museum, the uh, yeah Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, yep. he's very big on this. Uh, you know, one of the disconnects, I believe, when Christians have conversations with atheists is we are approaching the world from two vastly different points of view, right? Our, our worldview is vastly different. As Christians, our worldview needs to be based on Scripture. We derive it from, you know, the Bible. Atheists, of course, do not have that, so therefore it's just a materialistic type of worldview that they are starting with. You know, at the basis, I believe we, we both have a presupposition of sorts, right? Our presupposition is the world is best defined through the Bible through God, and atheists would then try to argue, no, it's strictly materialist. So that's often why we have this disconnect between atheism and Christianity, I believe, when we're having conversations. And as a Christian, especially in modern America today, I can't state enough how important it is to take the time, if you're a parent, to go through, learn some basic apologetic arguments. You don't need to be a professional scholar. Uh, to get involved in these debates and conversations, but you need to be able to offer your children some type of response when they have these tough questions. And, you know, with my kids, I've encouraged them to ask questions. I don't want them to to not have answers because they're going to go seek answers elsewhere, probably from the world, and that's not going to be a very good thing, you know, for our Christian youth. So we need to spend the time and effort learning the arguments for the existence of God, chewing on these things, that way we are prepared to help them in their own faith. Yeah, I would also just add, not only that, but your your kids in this day and age, they're going to go out into the world and they're going to get slaughtered um, if they're not prepared because they're going to be getting hit with, you know, science and evolution and all these criticisms of the Bible, like, oh, well, the Bible justifies slavery and all this other stuff. And they're, if you, they are not prepared, their mind is going to get blown, okay? Because a lot of people know uh, criticisms of Christianity, and you know they're not going to be ready unless you get them ready. You have got to give them armor, philosophical justification, good reasons. Prepare them. Otherwise, they're just going to get slaughtered out there, and they're going to think, "I don't have good reasons for my faith." You know, so many kids go to college and they stand in front of their professor. And uh, they've never been challenged, you know, uh, they've never felt like asking questions or when they did ask questions, they got shut down. And so they've never really thought critically about their faith. And they get, start getting questioned by their atheist philosopher teacher or whatever, and they don't have answers because they've never heard these these uh, problems before. Tell your kids the problems, tell them what they're going to expect and give them the answers to it, you know, uh, at least prepare them if you can. I know these, th- these things take time, but what's more important than your, your children, uh, you know, and, and where they go when they die? It's so important. I, that's what I believe anyway. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and we're blessed to live in the information age. You can get on YouTube. You can, you can go to a lot of great uh, philosophers, Christian philosophers that present, you know, apologetic type arguments. And, and so the resources are easily findable. You can just search for books. There's a plethora of, of great resources on Christian apologetics that will help you get prepared and uh, be able to defend the faith, not only for yourself when you're out in public, because it does happen more and more 
uh, in the age that we live in here in America as America becomes more and more secular. Uh, you know, one of the things we can talk about briefly, because you kind of come up with the four horsemen, uh, they, of course, represented uh, the new atheism. And the new atheism, their main argument against Christianity wasn't really an argument at all, but it was just rhetoric and shaming. And that's why we see so many memes on the Internet today trying to make Christianity look just preposterous because they know they can't engage Christianity with true philosophical arguments because they will get slaughtered in debates. It happens all the time. So they look for shame and ridicule in order to avoid arguments altogether. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, and I, I really wasn't much better when I was an atheist. Um, I didn't really, I loved to argue, but, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I mostly relied on rhetoric, you know, looking back on it. I don't think I was really actually making arguments or, you know, trying to um, have a good argument or any of that type of, of thing. And that's one of the things that bothers me, you know, when I talk to atheists is, it's hard to get them to actually engage, you know, like I put out my moral argument. I took about at least 10 hours to write the whole thing with the justifications, put it all in order and everything. And I have yet to get any kind of decent response to it. I don't know. Maybe a few atheists out of probably a hundred have actually read through the whole thing. Maybe, maybe two of them. And I haven't gotten any actual decent critique of it and i would admit if i got a decent critique i want a decent i just want somebody to actually read it and say this is why i disagree and 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 give it a fair hearing and they won't do it you know it's not about reason it's about rebellion absolutely well daniel i do appreciate the time and closing here do you got any other thoughts to add um, I would just say, you know, to any atheists that know me and are listening to this, um, that even though I might give you a hard time, I just want to tell you that I love you and I give you a hard time because I understand you. And I know that the people that I respected the most, the apologists that I respected the most pushed back. You know, it was the Christians that... Um, actually had something to reply to me with and had reasons and, and uh, didn't just lay down. It was, and, and those types of Christians bothered me, but it was a begrudging respect that I had for them. And so I'm really speaking your language, if you're listening to this as an atheist, because I know the language because I spoke it for my whole life, you know, until I got saved and was born again. And so that's why I do what I do the way I do it. And you know, to any atheist that wants to start over and, uh, you know, have a, a good conversation with me, that's what I really want is uh, good conversations where we talk about our worldviews and we talk about uh, what's true and we, we try to find what's true. And it really bothers me that atheists aren't all saved because I know I was one of the hard hearted, hardest hearted son of a guns out there. I was one of the meanest atheists that you, you're going to find. And if I could get saved and know the love of Jesus Christ, I know that you can too. And it bothers me so much that you don't. And I talk to you guys because I care about you, not because it's fun to deal with you, because it's not. It doesn't bring me any pleasure dealing with you, but I have a burden for you. And I feel like I kind of deserve to deal with you because I was you. I was like you, and I gave Christians such a hard time 
So I put up with it and I'm doing it because I care about you and I want you to get saved and know Jesus Christ just like I do. Amen. Thanks again, Daniel. Hey, thank you very much, Wendell. It was a real honor and privilege to uh, get to share a space with you. So thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. You guys have a great night.